And this leads me to my question. Is Jesus beautiful to you? Not just true, not just helpful, not just the right thing to do, but beautiful. And by beautiful, I don't mean the superficial versions of this that that fill our social media feeds or store windows or magazine covers or cinema screens. I'm talking about the beauty that reminds us just how small we are and catches us up in a story far, far grander than we could imagine. Jesus is beautiful. The question is, is he beautiful to you? Welcome to the Follower Podcast, a place where we're learning to follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. I'm your host, Matthew Lewis, and I'm so glad you've joined us on the journey. To behold the beauty of the Lord, an exercise both for earthly and heavenly worshippers. We must not enter the assemblies of the saints in order to see and be seen or merely to hear the minister. We must repair to the gatherings of the righteous, intent upon the gracious object of learning more of the loving Father, more of the glorified Jesus, more of the mysterious Spirit, in order that we may the more lovingly admire and the more reverently adore our glorious God. What a word is that, the beauty of the Lord. Think of it, dear listener. Better far, behold it by faith. What a sight will that be when every faithful follower of Jesus shall behold the King in his beauty. Oh, for that infinitely blessed vision. These are the words uh, of a famous old preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and they are the tone that I would like to use to introduce our topic for today, which is the beauty of God and gazing upon that beauty. If you're just joining us, we've been in the series called Return, which is really just another word we've been using for an old-fashioned concept called repentance, which means to come back to God, to renew our minds, to renew our thinking, to wrap our, our whole lives around the person of Jesus. It means we were going in one direction and now we're going in another. It means Jesus doesn't become an appendage to our lives, not an add-on or an accessory, but we see who he is and we now orient the whole of our hearts, we orientate the whole of our lives to know him and make him known. That's what we're talking about when we talk about returning. And we've been looking at Psalm 27, 4. And uh, it's been really, really helpful. And what we've looked at is uh, the function of doing a, a kind of spiritual itinerary. You know, we, we, we've said uh, the, the kind of this prayer of search my heart, find any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. We've asked God to show us all the desires uh, that we have that are not Him, right? All those things that we've prized above the one eternal thing that matters most. We, we've said that we want to want God, but we don't necessarily want God. 
And so we, we ask God to help us move past disordered desires that lead to a disordered life into eternal longing that leads uh, to the fullness of the eternal life that he came to give us, this one thing life. We then understood that this longing, this divine hunger within us, what I call the ache, is actually God at work wooing us to himself, calling us home because he is a lover and not a tyrant. But we also said that at some point we must either choose to respond to that call or not. We, we're going to have to seek him if we want him, not casually, but earnestly. And we said that this decision to seek God really does matter because uh, to fail to make that choice toward intimacy with God is implicitly to choose to make a choice away from intimacy with God. Why? Because we wake up every day into formation machines that we call our culture. And this culture is not forming us toward Jesus, but away from him. Uh, Guys, intimacy, we've said, is not automatic. And so we've said one thing we desire that will we seek after. And then in our last episode, we spoke about how our deepest desire really is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. And that, that actually when we start to seek God, the next movement is quite counterintuitive, which is, <laughs> which is conducive and, and sounds about right when we're talking about the kingdom of God. That, that if we want God, while seeking is necessary, He's not nearly as far away as we would imagine. In fact, the radical miracle Jesus comes to declare is that God is waiting for us in every moment of our lives. That seeking God is, at least to begin with, as simple as slowing down. Not so much to find God, but to let God find you, to find us. Not so much to love God, but to let God love us. Because in the end, hear this, that is who you are in your deepest self. You are the beloved of God. And, you know, off the back of that last episode, uh, before we jump into the next, we actually had a question, and I wanted to bring that question in now because I think it's a helpful transition uh, from the last to the next, and it comes from uh, Andile Ndlovu in KZN in Durban. Uh, Hi, Andile. And and his question was this. He said, when I decide to take a sabbatical from my busy work schedule and go away, the idea is to rest in God's presence. So basically, Andile has been kind of stirred by the series we've been doing, and he's, he's wanted to really do this. He's wanted to go and abide, to remain in God, to dwell in the house of God. And based on this last uh, episode that we just finished in, on abiding, on, on uh, dwelling, He's asking, what are some of the practical ways of resting in God that I could learn? Especially for someone who's never taken time off from a busy life. And I just want to encourage you, Andila, you're not alone in that. So many of us have never taken time off from our busy lives. It's that image we used in the last episode of we're like a car on a highway and the backseat is loaded with stuff. And the second we try to pull up the handbrake and stop, everything just comes flooding onto our laps, you know, because our souls are so tightly wound because we really are more students of our culture than we are students of Jesus. 
And so it's uh, completely natural and dearly be encouraged that when you decide to take this seriously, you suddenly start to feel uh, the reality that you're an amateur in this area. <laughs> that, that actually this is quite hard and you're not sure how to do it. And so I just love the practicality of your question. I think in response, Andili, what I would, uh, would say is that I wouldn't give you a definitive answer, not because I'm trying to be vague or, or to avoid the question, but because uh, I want to... Um, I want us to try and steer away from any one-size-fits-all approach to our friendship with Jesus. Um, There are definitely people who've gone ahead of us who are smarter than us and cleverer than us, and we can learn from them. They can give us kind of signposts in our friendship with Jesus, these holy habits or practices or disciplines that we see in the life of Jesus and in the lives of people who've followed him over the years. Man, these things are so helpful as kind of uh, signposts, right? But what we need to avoid at all costs is any and all forms of legalism, okay? Because it's not just the spiritual disciplines, but the spirit of the disciplines that matters, okay? So it's not just what we do, but how we do it, why we do it, that is either going to lead us to life and life to the full, or is going to become a religious burden around our neck and crush us under the weight of our attempts to try and earn our way to Jesus. And remember, we've said this again and again, we're just going to keep saying it, that the gospel is opposed to earning. And we must say that really, really strongly. You are not in charge of your formation. You're not in charge of your friendship with Jesus. Jesus is the one who's in charge of it. You're not in control of your friendship with Jesus. Jesus is the one who's in control of who you're becoming in Christ. The gospel is very much opposed to earning. And so all our tendencies that try to take hold of the steering wheel of our lives again and earn our way and and architect our way into what we think is right relationship with God, those things are futile. However, what the gospel is not opposed to is effort, right? And that's where the practices come in and things like resting and delay. It's not opposed to effort. And so what that means is, All of these ideas, things like dwelling and resting, things like Sabbath or sabbatical, what you're talking about on Dile, these things have no magic in and of themselves. They are simply doorways to the one who changes us. Okay, so grace actually is the active agent in your transformation. And what disciplines and practices do is they put you in the grace of God. (laughs) You could imagine it like a river. The river's flowing. You are a stone with many jagged edges, okay? It's the water rushing over the stone that smooths it out. That's grace at work over your life. What the practices do is they put the stone in the river. And that's where the grace of God changes you. So with all that said... Um, this is not, um, uh, let's say it this way, this is not a one-size-fits-all thing. You, you are going to be a student of this all the time in your life, Andile. And w- even as you get a kind of proficiency around your disciplines and your life with Jesus, at this stage in your life, you're going to enter into another life phase. Let's say you, maybe you get married or you have kids or, or let's say you get older and your kids move out and you get whatever the thing is, you get a new job, you move to a new city. As your life circumstances change, so too your disciplines have to adjust and adapt. And so these things can't be static and religious. They've got to be open uh, to shift and change. It's Jesus saying that um, the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. It's that same idea, right? But with all that said, here's a few pointers uh, that I found helpful as I've tried to grow in this practice of slowing down Sabbath, dwelling, sabbatical, just a slower life. First one is be kind to yourself. 
as I've alluded to. Do this as you can, not as you can't. In other words, I read, for example, me, I read like a St. Ignatius of Loyola or like a St. Augustine or one of these guys, man, and I'm just so inspired and I'm like, okay, cool, I'm going to do this, right? And then I try to enter in at their depth of the pool and I just start drowning because I realize I haven't given my whole life to this stuff, man. And these guys have walked a journey that I, I haven't even, even really comprehended yet. And so I can only start where I am, not where I'm not. Second thought I would say is planning creates freedom. Uh, I'm the kind of person who's very adaptable. I like to go with the flow. So one of the mistakes I've made in my uh, devotional life with Jesus is I've kind of given that same spontaneity to it. And spontaneity is good. I mean, just this morning before I was preparing this podcast, I was in the shower, beautiful worship music happening. And man, it just turned into a full-on worship session there in the bathroom. I was kind of delayed with some other stuff because I just got caught up with Jesus. Amazing time, right? And so it's not that there's no room for spontaneity, but I have found um, in my life, particularly if I want to push against the current of busyness, I actually need to plan that. I need to build some structure around that. Um, and so planning actually creates freedom. Third thought I would say is that we must, with, we must follow the example of Jesus. We must withdraw to quiet places. The thing is, though, in our culture, withdrawal is not just a geographic issue. Okay, because in the world we live in, everywhere you go, the world goes with you, whether it's through your phone or your laptop or some kind of tech. So I've felt that and when I want to do a quiet space, even if it's just like my devotional space in the morning or whatever it is, I try to make that space as tech-free as possible so that I'm not distracted. Um, third element uh, or fourth element, I would say engage in God through worship and scripture and, and just in the tools that he's given you. Fill that space with, with the Bible and whatever beautiful worship music is helpful to you or art that kind of puts you, points you back to Jesus or, or nature that pulls your heart out toward the Lord. Like, like really get your gaze on him. And we'll talk again a, a bit more about that uh, today. Um, and then w- w- with regards to that, less is generally more. So avoid the temptation to take 10 books with you on a sabbatical or, or like 600 <laughs> podcasts into your quiet, quiet space, right? Instead, do less rather than more. So a story around this is I was going away for three days for a kind of a break space and uh, asked my spiritual director for some advice around what I could do. And he literally just gave me five verses from John, uh, John 15. That was it, five verses. And for three days, I sat with five verses. And man, those five verses literally shifted my heart in those three days in a beautiful way. So less is generally more. And then have a healthy balance of upstream and downstream practices. So what this means is there are some things which will be easier for you because of who you are and some things which will be harder for you because of who you are. And so don't think of discipline only as like, oh, these are the really, really hard things I have to do to be a better Christian. That's the wrong spirit about it. It's like, man, these are gateways to your deepest longing and desire. And so it's okay to have a good balance of upstream things, things that are hard for you. An example for me would be silence and solitude is difficult. That's hard, right? But uh, a practice like worship Uh, is really, really easy and beautiful. Even, man, I I just love learning. So like podcasts are great for me. I sit down with a podcast, I get out a sketch pad 
I let the podcast play and I'm listening to it while sketching whatever it's kind of doing in my heart. Uh, that's like a downstream practice for me. So that's like a pleasure space, you know? So don't only think about your time away with the Lord in terms of disciplines of what you mustn't do or stop doing. Also think of them as disciplines as what you must engage in. And don't only think of them as the things that are hard in a gym context, like adding more resistance to your workout. Also think about them in the things that are good, things that are healthy, but that, that really bring joy to your heart. They just, you just love those things, and those things are easy for you. Upstream, downstream practices. And then finally, I would just say journaling uh, is really, really helpful. Um, I find journaling helpful because it gets my internal world outside. Uh, so what's going on in my head and what's going on in my heart, I just sit down, I just start writing as if I'm talking to God, and all of a sudden I go, oh, that's what I'm actually thinking. That's what I'm actually feeling. So I hope that's helpful for you, Andita. It's not like a do this and everything's better, but these are some pointers. Do as you can, not as you can't. Planning creates freedom. Withdraw from the world. Engage in God. Less is more. Upstream and downstream practices and the, and the discipline of journaling. I found that those are some ingredients that help my uh, Sabbath time. And when I do do sort of more extended sabbatical spaces, those things really help me connect with God. Now, with that aside, this takes us to our next part of the series. Um, we've been looking at this idea of repentance and everything that that means. Um, and now we're continuing with the question of uh, what do we do with the space that dwelling creates, right? So we've said that actually to seek God isn't that far away. We just got to slow down into the moment. But the question is once we slow down into the moment and that space opens up for our souls, what do we do with that space? Because um, some of the caution is that this could be kind of put in the same boxes, um, I guess maybe centering ideas or even mindfulness. Uh, you know, the question could be put to me like, Matt, are you just suggesting that we empty ourselves or center ourselves? Is this about self-actualization? And if it is, how is it different from the mindfulness or, or meditation techniques or, or any other of the, of the many techniques that fill our culture from Eastern mysticism to New Age spirituality? How, how's what you're talking about different? And that's an excellent question, and that's exactly what I want to focus on in the next part of our psalm. So let's go to our psalm, and then we'll share some thoughts around that. Perhaps wherever you are, slow down. Let God find you in this moment. And let these words just wash over you. One thing I desire, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing upon his beauty and inquiring in his temple. Gazing upon his beauty. As you hold that line in your heart, what does it 
do to you? What invitation is waiting for you beneath the surface of those words? When last did you gaze upon the beauty of Jesus? For me, there are two thoughts that stand out from this idea. Uh, And the one is about beauty and its kind of diminished value in our age. And the second is about the difference between glancing and gazing and why we choose the former over the latter. But, but let's start with beauty. There's a book called uh, Beauty Will Save the World by a guy called Brian Zant. <laughs> and I love Brian, and I really appreciate so much of his writing. And particularly this book was, um, was a helpful, helpful thought for my soul as a, as a creative person, as an artist in some ways. I, um, you know, we live in an age where we are so molded by the Industrial Revolution uh, that everything has to have a utilitarian value. What I mean by that is, unless it's something that can be sold or quantified, we don't see the value of it in our community and in our culture. And so that that's a difficult place for artists to live, particularly because uh, art art doesn't always fall into those categories, right? Beauty doesn't always fall into those categories. And so, you know, Brian Zond, he writes this book, Beauty Will Save the World, um, to kind of address this issue and and the way we've neglected beauty in the way as a means of communicating the gospel. Powerful thoughts. So I would really recommend this book. But anyway, he, he opens the book with a story. And this story is um, a story of a thousand-year-old prince whose name is Vladimir. Okay, Now, he is a pagan monarch of Kiev. And this guy, Vladimir, he's, he's looking for a new religion to unify, unify the Russian people a thousand years ago. And so what he does is he sends out envoys, scouts, to go investigate the faiths of the neighboring realms and regions. It's almost like you can imagine he sends out guys on a shopping expedition to see which of the faiths would be the best to unify the Russian people around. And so these guys go out, and when they come back, uh, they obviously report back to him what they have seen and what they've experienced. Some speak about religions of these surrounding areas that are uh, dour and austere. By, by that, uh, he means like a very serious religion. It's the kind of, the kind of religion that grown-ups know about when they shout at children for being too happy in church. You know, that kind of religion. And so some guys are saying, man, there's this kind of religion going on. Then others, they speak about these faiths that are very abstract and theoretical. Uh, the kind that exists in lecture halls for the very, very serious Bible scholars, but it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really ground itself in, in, in the everyday life of, of normal, ordinary people. It reminds me of a, a conversation I had last week, actually, with a friend of mine who listens to the podcast, and she just said to me, she said, you know, Matt, um, I've just realized uh, that I am a maths teacher, <laughs> And she said, I may never understand all the things that you understand about the stuff that you talk about, but that's okay because I've, I've come to accept that I am, I'm not you and that I'm good at math and that if God's going to meet me, I'm pretty sure he's going to meet me in the maths, right? And, and in my life as a, as a mom and with my husband, just in the, every, in the soil and the substance of my life. 
And uh, I just would agree with that idea that sometimes uh, these faiths can get very, very um, theoretical and and uh, and abstract. And I know I'm guilty of that. Sometimes I can just float up into the clouds. But anyway, some of these envoys, they went and they found these faiths that were that. But then there were others, other scouts that went out. And they had gone and they had investigated the Christianity that existed in the capital of Constantinople. And there, here's, here's what they reported finding. They, they said they found a faith of such transcendent beauty that they did not know if they were in heaven or on earth. L- listen to this direct quote uh, from those chronicles. It says this. It says, Then we went to Constantinople, and they led us to the place where they worshipped their God. And we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth, for on earth there is no such view- vision nor beauty. And we do not know how to describe it. We only know, I love this, that God dwells among men and cannot forget that beauty. So after hearing about this unearthly beauty, this Vladimir guy, he adopts Christianity as the new faith for the Russian people. And so actually, if we look back, we might say that it wasn't apologetics or ethics, but aesthetics, beauty that brought salvation to the Russian people. Now, when you take this story from Brian Zont and you add it to what we've been learning, that we aren't so much what we think or even what we believe, but we are what we love, uh, that we're not as rational as we would like to think, but we're more emotive, um, then all of a sudden we start to see the importance of beauty in our friendship with Jesus. In our journey of returning to him, we need so much more than just good ideas and right theology. We need beauty. And this leads me to my question. Is Jesus beautiful to you? Not just true, not just helpful, not just the right thing to do, but beautiful. And by beautiful, I don't mean the superficial versions of this that, that fill our social media feeds or store windows or magazine covers or cinema screens. I don't mean the kind of beauty that has been enslaved to capitalism and shrunken down to the most um, insipid, carnal version of itself. The kind of beauty that is used as a way to um, enslave us to our appetites, Right? I don't mean the beauty that shrinks us in on ourselves. Rather, I'm talking about that beauty that reverberates in the deepest part of your soul and mind and calls us beyond ourselves. I'm talking about the beauty that reminds us just how small we are and catches us up in a story far, far grander than we could imagine. Uh, I'm talking about the kind of beauty we see when a mother holds her child for the first time or, or, or we, we see it in sunsets that paint the sky gold and make us forget about the traffic jam we're stuck in or galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy, star upon star upon star that light up the night sky when we lie on our backs and forget just for a moment the troubles of our day. This is the kind of beauty I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of beauty that calls us to the very best versions of ourselves rather than enforcing the worst. A beauty that can't be consumed or replicated or quantified. And you might say, well, what does this kind of beauty have to do with Jesus? And I would say everything. 
because we see this beauty pouring from a wooden cross when a hardened Roman soldier is standing before the Jesus he's just crucified and overcome by beauty, whispers out in awe, surely this was the Son of God. It's the kind of beauty that John experienced in Revelation chapter 1 on the island of Patmos Patmos, as he, he turns around and he sees a vision of Jesus in all his glorious, transcendent beauty. And his only response is to fall at his feet like a dead man. It's the kind of beauty that Isaiah experiences when he sees a vision of God and his response is, woe is me, for I am, a, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling among a, a, a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the kind of beauty that makes in Revelation eternal choirs sing out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's the, the kind of beauty that in that same passage drives heavenly elders to their knees as they cast their crowns before God and cry out, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Jesus, my friends, (laughs) is infinitely, transcendently, life-changingly beautiful. The rocks know it. That's why they would cry out in our place if we don't sing. The trees know it. That's why they clap their hands. The mountains know it. That's why they melt like wax before the Lord. Jesus is beautiful. The question is, is he beautiful to you? And more importantly, is he more beautiful than the life you've always wanted? Is he more beautiful than your dreams, your goals, and your desires? Does his beauty drive you to your knees and pry your many crowns from your hands? If not, then his invitation to you and to me is clear. Look again, and again, and again, and again. And that is the point of dwelling in this house of the Lord that is this very moment. It's not to empty ourselves, but to fill ourselves. The point of abiding is to fill ourselves, to overwhelm our senses, to gaze upon the beauty of God. And this leads me to a thought about gazing. (laughs) So because apparently no follower podcast would be complete without a C.S. Lewis quote. (laughs) Here's one from a book he wrote called The Weight of Glory. He says this. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. But we want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. 
I've had um, the great privilege of being a part of the bridal party for a few weddings now. And my favorite moment by far is always that moment when the groom sees the bride for the first time, slowly walking up the aisle toward him. In this moment, it just doesn't matter how tough and rough the groom may be every other moment of his life. I have seldom seen a man who doesn't weep at the sight of the woman he loves. And as she walks up that aisle, step by beautiful step, his eyes are fixed on her, even through the tears. For a moment, it's as if he forgets that any of us are even there, and the complete focus of his attention is consumed with the beauty coming toward him. This is what it means to gaze. Too many of us are so used to a spirituality of quick glances and feeding and fleeting glimpses that we wonder why our faith is dwindling and fading in passion. Guys, it's not because Jesus isn't compelling enough or beautiful enough to capture our hearts. Absolutely not. It's because we seldom take enough time to really see Jesus. It's like when you've been in a dark room for a long period of time and, and someone turns on the lights and, and what happens? Your eyes, they take a while to adjust. So too with your soul. As we've said, our, our whole world is a formation machine leading you away from a love affair with Jesus. It's a dark room. And as a result, you can't expect to really see Jesus in fits and starts. Your soul needs time to adjust. The eyes of your heart need time to come into focus. You need to gaze upon his beauty. To fix your eyes upon the beauty of Jesus drawing near to you as you draw near to him and to find quite miraculously, just like the groom staring at his bride, that the eyes of Jesus, his beautiful, life-changing eyes are fixed on you. <laughs> uh, this, um, this gazing in the Christian tradition is what many have called contemplation or contemplative prayer. I'm increasingly convinced that this is one of the primary engines of change in the Christian life. Not to say that right thinking and believing is irrelevant. God knows we don't need any more disembodied, soulish, relativistic thinking in our culture that is already dangerously adrift in an anchorless ideological sea. What I'm saying, though, is that we must... Uh, let the pathways of revelation and belief lead us to the central issue of encounter. Let me say that again. We must let the pathways of revelation and belief lead us to the central issue of encounter. We can know God, friends. We can see the beauty of Jesus. And in the light of his glory, our deepest desires and indeed our very lives can change. So as I, I thought about how I might end this time together, I thought it might be helpful to actually have a practical exercise in gazing at the beauty of Jesus through a, a passage in John chapter 5. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, um, it would be a good time for you to pause if you're not in a quiet space. Just pause uh, until you can stop and really give your attention to our reading together and then come back to it. If you are able to, if you're not busy right now and you kind of can give your attention to the podcast, then let's continue together. So, as we enter into this time, uh, try to set aside all the distractions. If you haven't downloaded this episode, take a moment now, pause the podcast, 
and download the episode and then put your phone on flight mode. Close the door if you can and find a comfortable chair where you can sit upright with your feet on the ground. Then begin by taking uh, a few deep breaths in and out. In and out. And as you breathe, pay attention to your body and let it relax. Feel your feet relaxing, your legs, your waist, your stomach, your chest, your neck, your face, even the top of your head. Finally, as you listen to me read now, speak to God and ask Him to meet you in this moment. Don't just hear the words, experience them. Use the gift of imagination that God has given you to meet Jesus in the story. What are the smells and sounds of the scene? What can you feel in your hands, beneath your feet? What emotions stir in you? What are the tones of voice of the people in the story? Try to see the faces of the people in the story. Imagine imagine their, their body language. And as much as you are able, put yourself into this story. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. As you listen to that story, here are three questions for you to process. How did Jesus meet you in that story? How did you see Jesus in new ways in that story? And what was beautiful about Jesus in that story? Amen. Thanks for listening, friends. Uh, I hope this episode was helpful for you. As always, please like, subscribe, share, and uh, leave us a review. I saw uh, on the podcast there was a, a review on the Apple podcast, which was great. And um, any other of the platforms that you listen to, please leave a review. They really do help um, get the message in people's ears. If this has been helpful for you uh, and you feel like it could help others, share it with them. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time on the follower podcast.